book of Romans, Romans chapter 14. Glad to see you were all able to bring your boats and dock here at the, at the lake here. Really glad to see you make it. It was really coming down about five this morning. Well, if you're going to be involved in a construction project, and we are just about, by God's grace, underway to do just that, phase two, there's some things that you need to know if you're going to be building a church, okay? I mean, first of all, if you're going to be building a physical church, you need a place to do it, right? You need some land, and you need to clear out any obstacles that may cause a hindrance for the church to be built, right? Anything that's going to be a problem needs to be cleared out. Second, you've got to be crystal clear on what you're building and why you're building. You need plans. You need to have some sort of visual concept of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then, of course, third, one construction is underway. You want to make sure that you actually protect it that you don't have somebody with their like forklift getting out of control and knocking down beams or going through walls because you want to protect what you're building. And furthermore, you want to protect the people that are around what's being built, right? That's, these are just some basics about building a building. And there's some parallel truths when it comes to building the church. Not the physical structure, but far more important, the actual body of Christ. Just like we saw like in Romans 12:5, and you see in multiple places in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the body of believers. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not talking about physical structures so much as the actual individuals that come together, then who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and are joined together in community. So the building is where the church meets. And so we refer to the church, right? And we think like the place. The building is where they meet. But the body is who they are. So what do we need to know if we're going to be involved in the building of the church? Friends, this is critically important. I mean, I'm super fired up. I know all of us are excited about actually having a building and being able to do phase two. Great need. Can't wait. But far more exciting is what God is doing in our midst. He has been in the process of building the church. And if you don't know the foundational principles of what that looks like, you very well may be actually doing the converse. You may actually be tearing down the very work of God that he's trying to establish. If you don't know Romans 14, 13 through 23, if that's not part of your thinking, we're going to have some pretty serious troubles. The work isn't going to develop like it should. On the other hand, if this text finds its way into our lives and the fabric of how we see the church being built, friends, man, it is going to be glorious. So what do we need to know? Well, first thing is you need to prevent obstacles to growth. Just like when you have a physical building, you've got to clear out any obstacles. You've got a place to be. You've got to make sure it's all level and move it out if that's what needs to take place. Friends, there are obstacles that need to be removed in order for a church to flourish. You see, God wants to create an environment for growth for his people. And that environment is the local church. The one problem is this. We are prone to be divisive. We are excellent at being judgmental. I mean, just think about how many judgments pass through your mind. You may not go vocal on them, but they might be on your face of judgments that you place on different people. You see people, you see their behavior, things that they're doing, 
and that it meets your approval and might smile, but if it doesn't, ooh, right? Lips get pursed, get all kind of cool, cold looking, might give someone the cold shoulder, ignore away, or give them like oh, your pathetic kind of look, right? What's going on? It's just like, it's like part of being human. It's being judgmental. And it's kind of like this. It's like this poem I read. Look as I look. Do always as I do. Then and only then I'll fellowship with you. If you do things my way and you meet my approval, we're going to be all right. But boy, you do something different. You will do a different conviction. We're going to have trouble. And I'm going to isolate myself from you. And I may actually put some subtle pressure upon you or some not-so-subtle pressure to get you to conform to my behavior. I want to feel good about myself, and I'd like you to behave like I behave. And these are obstacles. Let me, let me just give you some of the divisive issues that are in churches today, none of the which, I'm going to tell you, are actually addressed in Scripture. But they are like church dividers. They are major obstacles to growth and development. Like, can you or should you attend movies? Or the theater, or even be involved in them. What about cosmetics? Should you, could you, can you wear makeup? How much? Alcohol. Can you use it? Should you? What about tobacco? Its use. Card playing. Can Christians play cards? How about this one, dancing? Fashion. What's appropriate? Do you. Is it okay to kind of fit into the current generation, or do you need to wear clothes that kind of in the 1970s generation just so you look holy? I mean, is it what? Major dividing line, right? What about um, what Bible translation is used, or can you be in sports, or what is what what music is appropriate, and what music should a church have? Um, material wealth, how much is enough? Can you live in a nice house? Can you drive a nice car? What, how do you educate your children? Christian schools, private, public education, or is it actually, if you really want to be godly, you're supposed to be homeschool? And of course, these are major dividing lines that are set up in the churches, and guess what? They're actually not addressed in Scripture. Now, I want you to know that there are some principles, there are cardinal doctrines that we can be uncompromising on, like the deity of Christ, or the authority of the Word, or the fact that Christ is coming again, or that it is the gospel by grace. You can only come into relationship with God when you turn from sin and you trust in Christ. You can never earn God's favor. Favor. We can never compromise on those things, uncompromising. Or there are behaviors that are actually outlined and spoken of and addressed in the Scripture that are always sinful, like sex outside of marriage, homosexual behavior, lying, stealing, all of the, these, these behaviors, they're not like, well, we could hold difference of opinion. Uh, you know, and like, I'll tell you, the church is going to really face the homosexual issue. Because the big push is, hey, it's just another alternative lifestyle. Well, these people love Jesus and it's all fine and just go with it. There are certain things we simply can't compromise because God has made it clear in his word. And the church is about him, not about what we think or what's in vogue in our culture. Now, like, for instance, let's say someone comes from a background where they do not feel comfortable dancing, but there's a wedding and there's some dancing. Should you, like, hey, dancing's fine and oh, these people need to loosen up. Should you, should you kind of pull them out onto the dance floor and just kind of get them to get down? I mean, should you do that? All right, some of you are like, I don't know, should I? I, I want to tell you that you should not. First of all, you don't want those kind of images locked in your head, okay? I mean, this, it's not going to be pretty. If they haven't danced... Ever, 
at age 46, it's not going to look good, right? And it's going to be kind of weird. It's going to be on YouTube. You don't want to force them to do something that they've never done. That's just one reason. But let me give you some real good reasons why we need to consider another's interest before our own. Some biblical ones. Remember the last time we were looking at Romans 14, verse 12? Did you remember that? Maybe you put a little mark by that. But you need to remember that you're going to be held in account for your behavior and your attitudes and your actions. Look at verse 12. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. God is going to bring about an evaluation. Not an evaluation like, well, were you good enough to go to heaven? Because no, you're never good enough. You are a sinner. You have to place your faith and trust in Jesus, right? We're all totally dead in our sins. God gives life. You're not going to be judged whether or not you're good enough to go to heaven. That's been settled when you believe in Jesus. That's the dividing issue. Don't believe in Christ, you're not spending eternity with him. You didn't want him in this life, you most certainly won't have him in the next. On the other hand, if you believe, you will always be with him. But God is going to evaluate what you did with what you've been given. He's going to evaluate how you treated people, your attitudes, what you did, how you conducted yourself, what you did with the riches and the resources he gave you, the talents, everything. You're going to be evaluated, what did you do with what I gave you? You're also going to be evaluated how you treated others. That's the major thrust of Romans 14. And so he says, be real careful that you don't put obstacles in another's way. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us judge, let us not judge one another anymore. Then going on, Paul says, enough. This is contradictory to a healthy development in a church. Stop judging people, but rather determine or make this your your motive. Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. You see, don't put a trap or a snare. Don't put something that they will trip over into in front of another believer. Because, friends, you're going to be evaluated on that. And that is contradictory to a church flourishing and growing. Your judgmental attitude or you causing people to stumble because they don't hold quite to the same convictions that you do. Let's just kind of speed this up and to fast forward in today. Let's say a small group. Our small group did this once where we, uh, we had communion together. What if the leader says, you know what, uh, I think we're going to use uh, like alcoholic wine instead of like the unfermented grape juice that we do at church. Why not, right? But if there are some people in the group that would not feel comfortable with that, or let's say they come from an alcoholic background, they know to even taste it is going to send them back down to another 10-year spiral of destruction. What should you do? The right answer is Romans 14. You don't put any obstacle or stumbling block. You're like, you know what? That's, that is totally fine. You know what? Let's do this. We're going to use grape juice. Why? Because you're putting another interest before your own. You're far more concerned about the growth and the development of the body of Christ than you are your own personal preferences. Or let me uh, give you another one here. So let's just say that uh, this group, a small group, has said, you know what, we're going to have a movie night tonight. We'll all hang out together. Let's go to a movie. And somebody picks, oh, there's this great movie. And it's awesome, man. There is, there's, there's blood and gore and all sorts of violence. And it's, I mean, it's all fake, of course, but it's really cool. And it's got you totally locked in for two hours. But if you've got someone or a few people in your group that do not feel comfortable with that, like maybe they came from, some abuse in their background and seeing people getting pummeled all the time is not their idea of a good time. 
Furthermore, it kind of is almost traumatizing to them. What do you do in your small group? You know what you do? You pick a different movie that can work or pick something else altogether. Now, I tell you this because this is radical. How does the world treat differences of opinions? If a group wants to go to see a particular movie, but there's a couple that don't feel comfortable, what does the world say? The world says, get a life, grow up, stop whining, right? But what's radical about Christianity is that we've literally been brought into the body of Christ. He actually gives us his Holy Spirit, and we live now for the glory of God and the development of his people. We want to see people really mature in Christ, and that means it's not about what I want or what I feel is most important. It's like, what is for the best of you? How would our group grow? How would you develop as a believer. And what you want to do is you, even though you have good conscience to maybe see that movie or maybe drink wine with your dinner, if that's going to cause a problem for someone, the onus of responsibility is upon you who have the conviction that I can do this to hold back for the betterment of another. In fact, that's what he says. Look at verse 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He says, I know that you can eat ham with your eggs in the morning. I know that you can have bacon bits on your salad. I know these things. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If someone's got it in their head, this is unclean, then then you're not to do it. Okay? And you got a lot of folks coming from a Jewish background, and there were like certain things they did not do. And it had been generational. And they could just never see themselves going to the all-you-eat place and having a piece of ham. That's just not going to work. They're not going to have pork chops, and they can't do it. You shouldn't try to impose your convictions or your values on them. Paul knows it's, you certainly can, but you shouldn't. And so it's kind of like, maybe give you a parallel, like uh, there's certain segment of people that during Lent, the period before Easter, that eating on Fridays, that you can only eat fish if you're going to eat meat, right? Well, is, it, is that, is that going to cause some sort of spiritual corruption if you have a tuna fish sandwich on Friday, like the week before Easter? Does that have any bearing on your spiritual well-being, on your salvation, on your development? Well, of course not. Of course you can, you can have a tuna fish sandwich, whatever you want to do. You can have salmon. You can have shrimp if you like. But there are some people like, man, that's not going to work. And so what you do is you recognize that. And so you put another's interest before your own. And the reason is, look at verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Did you see that? That's how you and I are to walk. We're to walk according to love. We love God and we love others. And because I am motivated by love, I've received love, I'm going to express love. That's what actually then starts dictating my behavior. I, am, I want to walk according to love. And so he says, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Don't destroy with your food you, got, you can eat these things in good conscience. You can do these things because you have some biblical convictions that will allow you to do that. Make sure that you do not destroy someone else with your behavior. See, what's happened is the principle of conviction is to be met with the principle of consideration. And this is what you're supposed to experience in a church. So how does this, what does this look like? Let's say you've got uh, some folks that believe they... They can drink alcohol, obviously not to get inebriated and wasted and that sort of thing, not drunk, but you could drink alcohol. But 
let's say you've got like a newer believer and, you know, like partying and drinking out of hand was like part of their lifestyle that they actually felt like they've been saved and rescued from. But now they're seeing these believers and they're like, they're drinking beer and wine. And they're like, well, I, 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 I don't feel comfortable with this, but I, I guess I can. They're obviously a lot more mature than I am. And uh, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. But they, they start drinking. But, man, you know what happens? They don't feel comfortable with it. Their conscience, a conscience is your warning mechanism, that based upon your highest understanding of right and wrong, and it always goes off when you violate it. And it's like, whoop, wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, but, but they're doing it. But, and, and, and they kind of know that I don't want to do this, but now I am doing it. And what happens is you got spiritual danger zone. Anytime you can get someone to operate in violation of their conscience, the wheels really do come off the wagon. You are about to experience a spiritual wasteland because your conscience is always to be in tune to what you believe is right and wrong, and you never, never want to violate it. You, you can actually sear your conscience, First Timothy says, where it doesn't even function correctly. You always operate according to your conscience. So... If you think that that's not, well, that's not really a big deal. Tim Keller actually um, writes of this experience. He, he knew of this high school girl that came from like a, like a really strict church, and they actually had told their women like to not wear makeup, okay? It was wrong and sinful, and I'm sure they said, it's of the devil, right? Okay? But then, uh, so this girl, she's in high school, and, and there were other girls from other churches that totally fine with wearing makeup, and they started mocking her and ridiculing her, and I'll, I'll tell you, for high school kids, man, they want to fit in. They do want to do anything that's going to cause any problems. And so you got these nice little church girls that are just kind of putting the heat on this one girl who doesn't wear makeup. And so she's like, oh, I want to fit in. I want to be popular and I want to be well-liked. And so what she did is she'd leave home with no makeup, but then she would put makeup on. And voila, she shows up to school and, and she looks like the other girls that are all wearing their makeup. And then she would like wipe it off before she came home. And what happened, Liz, is this. Keller writes, she was choosing popularity over faithfulness to God. And she soon found herself much more open to real violations of God's will in the area of sexuality. You see, it all got started when she started just avoiding what her conscience was telling her. And she was actually under the pressure of other Christians to do so. And literally, her life devolved into a mess Friends, we're going to be involved in the building of the church. We've got to clear out any obstacle. We've got to make sure that we're not causing people to trip or to be ensnared. And what we need to do is understand that people need knowledge and love. It's kind of like, like kids, you know, like when they're small, they're afraid of like things in the dark, like in their room, right? Like I remember when I was a kid, I actually thought the planet of the apes lived underneath my bed, Okay. I'm just being really open with you and transparent. And so, like, if I had to get up in the, at night, I could literally jump from my bed out the door and never touch the floor because I didn't want them to get me, right? You know, I have these big eight guys that are living underneath my bed. And your kids, and I, I know you all have your phobias, and I'm just sharing mine. You can tell me yours later, okay? But your kids, they get scared, and what do they do? Like, call out, Daddy or Mommy, right? They're calling out, and so Mom and Dad come, and what do they do? They sit and they assure them and they sure turn the lights on. They open the closet door, look underneath the bed, and surely nothing's there, right? And eventually the kids grow up and they realize, you know what? They don't. I, I mean, just a couple of years ago, I finally came to the conclusion. They don't live underneath my bed. I'm feeling so much better. Our marriage is so much happier now, okay? 
But you see, you develop. But it's, friends, it's like this. Knowledge plus love helps the weak person grow strong. Did you get that? It's knowledge, what actually is true, plus love. It's love. You're cared for. You're accepted. That's what helps a weak person become strong. I remember, like, one of my kids was afraid of lights in a swimming pool, okay? You know, so, like, they'd be hanging on the side, and they would just go around the lights because they were afraid, like, something's going to come out or something. I want my kids to live with freedom in the pool and be able to swim without any fear that something's going to get them with the lights, okay? But you know how that happens. They, they come to understand these are lights just like my room. They just happen to be under the water, and it's really just not a big deal. So what have the strong forgotten? The strong have forgotten this, that they have forgotten to put the interest of the weaker person. And that doesn't, weaker is not bad. It's just that they've not developed their convictions. They're still learning the scriptures. They're still learning what they really can do and their freedom in Christ. And you know who you're hurting? See what the text says? It's your brother in Christ. So, If you and I are going to be involved in building up a church, you know what we need to do? We need to prevent obstacles to growth. Let me tell you something else we need to do. We need to pursue maturity in Christ. Just like when you're building, you've got to have a clear idea. What are we building? What is the plan? And why are we doing it? That's exactly where the scriptures go. So he says in verse 16, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing to be spoken of as evil. It's good and it's fine. You've got convictions and all sorts of freedoms in Christ to do all sorts of things. But don't let it be spoken of as evil because of your poor behavior. So he says, verse 17, remember what we are building, what God is doing in our midst for the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 17? It's not eating and drinking. It's not about stuff you're putting in your body. That's that's not about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is about the eternals, not the externals. But we are so prone to fix on the externals. Like, what are you wearing? What are you drinking? What are you eating? As if that makes someone holy. No. It's the eternal things. It's the work of God in our midst where he is bringing about like... uh, for instance, righteousness, which speaks of holy and, holy and obedient living. The kingdom of God is the sphere in which God reigns in the hearts of his people. And one day it's going to have a physical manifestation, a literal kingdom. But right now he's reigning in the hearts of his people. And the people's heart is to do what is right and holy before him. In fact, he gives his spirit to make that happen. The kingdom of God is about peace. Peace with God, justification, and peace with one another. Shalom, true peace. Not just a toleration, but a sense of well-being and joy in the Holy Spirit. The ability to experience joy in Christ that is manifested as the Spirit of God works in our hearts and we're reliant upon Him. Friends, that's the kingdom of God. That's what He's building. So we're not going to make sure that we don't put any obstacles, but let's make sure we're also pursuing maturity in Christ. In fact, he says in verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. Who are you serving? Christ. If you serve Christ in this way, you're focusing on the eternals, not the externals. You are acceptable to God. This is how he wants you to live. And you're approved by men. People evaluate this kind of behavior and they see God at work in your midst. And they're like, certainly God is among you. You live differently. 
It's clear and it's apparent. And so he says, verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace. This is what we're pursuing. This is the master plan. This is what the plans call for. And the building up of one another. We're about encouraging, developing. The church is where you come to know Christ. You actually come to personally be united with him and place your faith in him. And you grow to the fullness of maturity. Well, the church is the mystery that has been revealed. That Jew and Gentile are brought together. People from every nationality, tribe, tongue, and nation all find oneness in Christ. The church is where spiritual gifts are exercised. The church is where you experience unconditional love. The church is where even if you have a freedom to do something, you're saying, you know what? I'm not going to do it because I know that you don't feel comfortable with that. And I want you to continue to grow and experience well-being. That is the church. We're all about the building up of people. And so as Christians, what we do is we help each other grow. That's why you're involved in ministry. The folks, we got lots of folks involved in ministry. You know why? Because they're absolutely convinced through the Scripture and the Spirit of God that we're here to help other believers grow in maturity. That's why they'll invest with our children or our youth or our college students. That's why they'll lead fellowship families. That's why they're doing Bible studies at work. You know why? They're convinced that God wants to see people brought to the fullness of maturity. And you know, that's what happens. It's kind of like, if you ever had the experience where you brought home a little baby, okay, and we've done this four times, you bring home the child, you actually set up kind of like new parameters. Like before, you'd leave like scissors laying around and you'd have like cleaning detergents like right there at the ground level, right, underneath your sink, right? But then you realize, whoa, poison's not good. The scissors, like the little baby could take it and like stab themselves in the eye. We don't really want that, right? It's traumatic enough that the kids around, so you like set up... We're not going to leave the scissors out. We're going to move some of these cleaning things. Right? We do these things. Why? Because we understand that the little baby is growing. And so they're toddling around and rolling around and walking and crawling, and they're growing up. And as they grow up, guess what? Well, we can leave the scissors out. I'm not too worried about my high schooler kids, you know, stabbing themselves in the eye with the scissors. It's not, it's not a big concern of mine. It was when they were really little. I don't want to do that. Well, that's how it is in the church. And I'll tell you this. You're meant to grow up. God doesn't want you to stay at the infant stage or the toddler stage. You know, if you've got someone that's about 18 years old, but they, they can't walk and they're always falling down and doing a lot of crazy stuff, guess what? You know that uh, something's wrong. Something's not right. Same with spiritual maturity. And it's a natural growing process where you mature in Christ, and that's what you see. But the problem is, is that we sometimes forget that the church is all about pursuing maturity in Christ. We get focused on externals, not the eternals. God wants us to focus on the kingdom of God. I was reading uh, this guy named Clark Cother, and he is a pastor up in Michigan. And apparently in their community they had some issues that uh, different pastors thought differently on, and they, they actually all came together in a conference room. And they had about 40 of them. They're all kind of packed in there. And uh, there was obviously some sharp difference of opinions among the spiritual leaders in the community. And pretty soon, observations sounded a lot more like accusations. And voices went up and logic went out. And they started tearing into each other. And it just turned into this melee, huh? And that's probably the worst thing to do is get a bunch of pastors together. And, hey, why don't you fix something, right? So they're all tearing each other apart. And there's this one pastor in their community, a distinguished African-American pastor. goes by the name of Brother Rochelle. And they all knew him, and, and he's, he's in this midst and kind of watching this, and this older gentleman stands up. And people are bickering, blah, 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 and tearing each other apart. 
Well, they see Brother Rochelle, and he's standing up, and he's just kind of looking at all of them. Everybody started kind of quiet down. People started following, finding their seats, and he's just kind of looking at them. And then with just such deep compassion in his voice, he said, Oh, my dear children. And he's looking them all over, and you can just sense the Spirit of God working in the midst of these spiritual leaders. And then he just quoted the one Bible verse, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. And he sat down. And after he got done, there was this moment of silence where people recalibrated. Then they started engaging in a civil conversation, clothed in the character of Christ. Friends, I want you to be mindful. If we're going to be involved in the building of a church, we must be pursuing maturity in Christ, and it must look like Christ-likeness in our life as we go about it. You see, believing in Christ leads us to building up people in Christ. That's how it works. And finally, if you're going to be involved in a building project, you're going to be involved in building a church, you need to protect the work of God in our midst. Just like when you start seeing walls go up and all this framework and trusses, it's going to be safety zones. We don't want people to be careful. We're not going to want a dump truck running through walls or a guy with a forklift getting crazy. None of that. Why? Because we want to protect what's getting built. And frankly, people get injured when you've got that kind of reckless behavior. You need to protect what's going on. Same in a church. You've got to protect the work of God in your midst. Look what the text says. Look at verse 20. He says, do not tear down the work of God. When you see a church maturing, when you see believers growing in grace, this isn't like a work of man. This isn't just a nice organization. It is a supernatural work. It is the work of God. He's the one that's doing it. That's why he doesn't want anybody messing with it or toying with it. He says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. Paul says, I know that. But they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. If you, if you give offense with your eating or your drinking habits or your different things that you're doing, you know that you're causing people to trip and stumble. Friends, that's evil. You're going to be held account for it. God may very well even now be getting your full attention on the matter. And Paul says in verse 21, you know what? When liberty hinders the work of God, liberty must yield. Look at that. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine. Or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. It's, if there's causing your brother to stumble, don't do it. Just stay away from it. You're going to be just fine. You're going to have a happy life. You can refrain. Now, that's not saying that in certain contexts, your home or other avenues, you can do these things. You go to that movie, whatever. You've got freedoms in Christ. Just, I want you to see from the text that God is calling you to be very sensitive to the other believers around you. It is the work of God. And so he says, verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. You develop your own conviction. And he says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. You're going to have a pretty happy life if you're not condemning yourself for the things that you approve. So you handle yourself well. So really, a major question that we all got to answer is, how do you develop your convictions? How do you actually develop biblical convictions? It really matters, and I encourage you to do so. Let me just, you might want to take a few notes. I'll just tell you how you do it. First of all, you determine what the Scripture has to say on 
a host of the different things that we just even mentioned earlier. What, what does the scripture have to say? Or are there scriptures that come into play on this particular uh, situation? Then the second is, is to discuss with a trusted, mature believer or two, people that are mature in the faith, okay? Ask them, how did, where did you land on this? And how did you come to their, this conviction? That doesn't mean that you have to adopt their conviction, but talk with them. Tell them things that you're wrestling with and talking and thinking through. And then the third is this. Consider the impact these convictions would have on others and yourself, both positively and negatively. This third point is, is really important to me. Uh, there's a lot of things that I believe that I can do. I believe I've got freedom in Christ to do. I've got biblical reasons where I could do certain things. But I choose actually not to, based on the third point. I know that people watch me. I know I live in a fishbowl. I go pretty much anywhere in the community. People watch me. I, I know They know who I am. They know where I do. I know that. I also know we got a lot of young people in our church. I know that if I would do certain things and I have the freedom to do so, that could be a major stumbling block for them. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I get Grant's doing that. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'd be cool. I'm a little young for that, but I guess I can do that too, right? You want to think these things through. You pray about them and think about the implications, both positively and negatively. And then you know what you do? You just set your conviction. You just set it. And that will allow you to live with freedom and with joy and with happiness. Just like the text says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And so he says, verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. If you don't have a good conscience and the faith like I can do this and it's not a problem, then let me give you a principle that saved me a lot of grief. And every time I violated it, I paid some tuition on it. When in doubt, don't. When in doubt, don't. Paul says you want to follow your conscience, set your convictions. It's kind of like this, how we deal and handle ourselves in the body of Christ. It's like Repertus Mobinius said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And let me, from the book of Romans, cast the vision of what the church is to be. This is to be a community of grace where we put another's interest before our own. We want to see Christ exalted. We really want people to know Christ personally, really. No games. And we want you to see you come to the fullness of maturity where you're getting to know God and his word. And he's shaping your character, your convictions, your attitudes, your beliefs, your values. You start behaving differently. It's showing up in your relationships with how you treat your spouse and your kids and the people in your community and even your enemies. It shows up in your work and in your ministry. And the two are directly related. And you're maturing. That is God's vision for the church that we experience the fullness of maturity in Christ. And I'll tell you, when these principles found in these verses take root in a church, the church soars. After all, it is the building project of God. It is the work of God in our midst. Diversity does not need to become divisive when liberty is guided by love. So we understand that believing in Christ leads us to building up people in Christ. You know, anytime we talk about convictions, uh, there's just a a great example that has meant a lot to me. A guy by the name of Eric Little, um, the guy 
actually dies in an in, as he's interned as a POW in a Japanese camp, uh, horrendous conditions during World War II. Um, he was actually born to a missionary fi- family in China, was actually born in China, um, spent some time going back to Scotland where his family had originated from. Um, during the war, he sends his family, his wife, kids, and, the, uh, and an unborn child to Canada for safety because they knew that the Japanese were going to overrun them and what the Japanese were doing to the people of China was horrendous. But he had such a love for the people of China, he decided, I think the Lord wants me to stay and minister to needs here. So he does. But many of you are familiar with Eric Little from the movie The Chariots of Fire. And in this movie, they tracks two track stars. One, Eric Little, who was from Scotland. He was extremely fast. And another, a guy by the name of Harold Abrahams. And both of them are targeting the 1924 Paris Olympic Games. Well, uh, pretty fascinating when you look at this. These guys were the track stars. Eric Little actually had beat Harold Abrahams in the 100 meters at one time. But now they are both united. They are both running for Great Britain. And Great Britain thought they were going to be kind of the track and field champions of the Olympics because they had some awesome stars. And everything was great, except when the actual schedule of events came out for the Olympics. On the schedule, the opening qualifying heats for the 100 meters, which Eric Little was to run, was on a Sunday. And furthermore, uh, Eric Little was supposed to be part of the 4x100 and the 4x400 team, and the finals, which they had anticipated they would be in, was going to be run on a Sunday. And Eric Little had the conviction that you... He just simply couldn't run on Sunday. In fact, he treated Sunday, he called it the Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day, and it had always been his practice to just reserve that day for the worship of God and for rest. He didn't run, he didn't work, and so that was been his conviction. But now, his dream and the pressure of a country to run on a Sunday in the Olympics. And so, just right off the bat, he just said, I, I can't do it. I It is my conviction that I can't run on a Sunday. And so he withdrew from 100 meters and these 4 by 100, 4 by 400. How do you think the people of Britain responded? Did they say, finally, yes, we got a young man with some conviction. That is awesome. Listen, you want to end up like this in telling their kids. Is that what happened? No. The pressure went on. It was full court press. People came to talk to him. Newspapers addressed him. Even a lot of British Christians tried to convince him to run. Kind of presenting the argument like, well, actually the qualifying heat is in the afternoon on Sunday. Church will be over, okay? And you can just run. I mean, the guy could jog and still qualify, and, and he wouldn't do it. He, uh, he, found, he dropped out of those different races. Britain put some others. He found a few races he could do, the 200 meters and the 400 meters. He was really not a specialized in 400 meters. Didn't think he would probably do very well in that. So he goes with the Olympic team. On the day that they're running the qualifying heats for the 100, that Sunday, you know what he's doing? He's preaching in a church in Paris. He's expounding the Word of God. And believe me, he had the world's attention because of this conviction. Everybody kind of knew about this. When people would ask him, what in the world, why would he do this? He would say this, quote, I don't need explanations from God. I simply believe him and accept whatever comes my way. Well, in the Olympics, he uh, did actually, rather unexpectedly, he got a bronze medal in the 200 meters. He ran the 400, and he he was always just good enough to make it to the next level. And lo and behold, he made it into the finals, 
Last one, they actually put him in the final lane. So if you run track, you know if you run the 400 meters, you do not want to be on the outside lane because you can't see your competition. You really don't know where they're at. You're listening for breathing, you're listening for footsteps, but you don't really know where your competition's at because you're on the outside lane. You actually don't realize it until you actually go around the final bend, and then we're all evened up. But he drew the final lane. Right before the race, as they're kind of getting set, an American trainer runs up to Eric Little while he's getting ready to run the race, and he hands him a piece of paper. Little opens it up, and it says, 1 Samuel 2.30, Those who honor me, I will honor. Little takes that piece of paper, and he puts it in his hand, and he carries it the entire race. The gun goes off, and in his forearm, he's had a pretty inefficient forearm, and he put his head back, and he just fling his arms. He ran the race of his life. By the time he broke the tape, he was five meters ahead of the next runner, and he crushed the Olympic record. It was a tremendous scene for the world, for us, to see a man living by his convictions. In the movie, they have a scene where, where Eric tells his sister that, Jenny, I, I believe God has called me to be a missionary to China, and, and I am going to go. And she really wanted him to just go now and drop the whole running bit. But he said, Jenny, Jenny, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And he believed that God wanted him to be on a public stage and represent Great Britain for his purposes. But friends, that's how God wants us to live. When I run, when I live, I sense God's pleasure. I come to my convictions and they are solidly rooted in the scripture and I will not be persuaded. And I will live in the freedom of God's grace. And friends, that's how we're to live. That's how we're to live as individuals. That's how we're to live to the church. And when we do, when God's word governs our hearts, you know what happens? The church is built up in love. Let's pray. And I just want to give you a minute to just go before God. And I want you to think about this passage, and I want you to think about your life. And ask God to help you see the way. Correct perhaps something that needs to be corrected to... Perhaps take a step of conviction where it needs to be taken. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. And if there is someone who has come here today who has never really trusted in Jesus, they've perhaps heard about him, been in some churches, but they've never trusted Christ, would they, now that they see their need and the wonders and the goodness of Christ, would they simply pray with me and say, God, I... I turn from myself and from my sin, and I trust in Jesus. And I ask that you would lead my life and and be the Lord of who I am. And God, for all of us, may we have convictions that are settled in your word. May we live with grace. May we be about your work of the building of the church for your glory. We ask this as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.